Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. started going to church every day at the 7 a.m. Um, mass and it's where I found God again and I think that was really like my turning point in everything um, when I really started to realize that I was on a path I wasn't sure at that time exactly what the path was but I knew I was heading somewhere I just had to let go and let God and get there. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to the Truth That Heals podcast. I'm here with a dear friend of mine, Kelly, host of the Unbroken Podcast for a follow-up. Welcome back, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, and it's great to have you back. Thank you for Thanks coming. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> yes. Um, our last uh, interview that I, that I had with you, I had a lot of feedback, and a lot of people were were letting me know that they were not aware of these conditions which you were were talking about in the last episode and for those who aren't uh aware you were sharing your story of of trafficking which for some people it is just something that they see in the movies but here you came and really talked about the reality reality of it so thank you for enlightening not only myself but also many people in the audience Thank you. And that's uh, essentially why I started to share my story, because it was it was just so bizarre to hear so many people talking about my trauma, but not actually talking about my trauma. So mm-hmm. I started sharing because I wanted to put a face to trafficking and to share the reality of it, because it's not what people expect it to be or what they read about on social media or things like that. Yes, and the the interesting thing about your story is that, you know, after you got out of it, you've been on a journey. You've been doing a long one. <laughs> <laughs> a long one, yes. Yeah. But you've been doing your podcast, you've been bringing awareness, but this didn't happen overnight after you left that life. Uh can you share with us what the cuz in the last episode you shared with us the journey of being in that environment uh, for this episode, can you guide us into what life has been after leaving that lifestyle, after leaving that dark environment? What was what was different when you left? Uh, uh, well, it was it was really difficult because um, I had I had tried escaping a while before the final escape. 
And I was in constant contact with the domestic violence shelter. And at this time in my life, I thought that it was just domestic violence that I was experiencing. I wasn't fully aware that it was called sex trafficking. So um, I found out pretty early on that I actually did not meet the qualifications to get into the emergency shelter. And it just, it drove me crazy because they said that I was an adult and it was my parents. So I could leave at any time. There was nothing holding me back. And I'm just like, how is that not true from women that are escaping abusive husbands? And it when it comes down to it, it's funding. They don't have a, a nearly enough funding or nearly enough room. And at the time, my escape trafficking wasn't as talked about as it is now. But um, there were extenuating circumstances that I don't really feel comfortable talking about, but they did make an exception for me and my daughters to get into the shelter. Um, which we stayed at for, uh, we got there September 24th and we left, um, a couple of days before Halloween and I got into the transitional living program, which, um, was hard. I had to be in school and, or working, which I was doing both at the time and, um, the closest bus stop was a mile away. I had two kids. One was in preschool. The other was in kindergarten. So I was getting up at like four or five o'clock in the morning just to be able to catch the bus to drop them off and keep hopping back and forth on different buses to get myself to school. Um, and it was a good program to be in, but eventually... Um, I started struggling with addiction and with some mental health issues, I guess you can say. So I signed myself into a dual diagnosis. Um, like it's like the psychiatric ward, except it's it's also for addiction, but it's for mental health mm -hmm. reasons too. So um my daughters, I had a choice to put them either into foster care or send them to their father, which I chose to send them to their father, which at the time seemed like a great idea, but it ended up being a massive mistake. So um, when I got out of the unit, um, I was just thrown on the streets. I wasn't eligible to be in the program anymore because I didn't have my children. And um, so, yeah, I it was a very, the beginning of a very long journey of being homeless. So, and I'm talking like under a bridge in Florida during like thunderstorm season, oh, yeah. like that kind of homeless. And it was very humbling. I will give it that. I met a lot of really great people that turned out to be a family. We all looked out for each other. We all cared about each other. If we were able to do some kind of side job and make a little bit of money, we would buy like, um, like a pizza for everyone or cake, you know, 
but most of the time it was eating at soup kitchens and spending a lot of time at the library. I was one of the only places that they didn't really kick homeless people out. But I mean, I got trespassed from a lot of places just because they knew that I was living on the streets. And I eventually left the state and it just continued. I just, I couldn't find a place that was home um, until I met my current husband and we lived at our house for just a couple of years. And then we were homeless until about just over four years ago. So for the majority of the 13 and a half years since I left, I was homeless. So you know, going back, you know, you're, you're trafficked, then you were able to leave. And now you're in this predicament where it's, it's hard to, to get by from what you're sharing. Yeah. Um, was and- there ever, Oh, go ahead. Was there ever a point where you, in that dark period, where you regret you regretted leaving, and maybe thought, "I should have stayed." Mm-hmm. A lot, <laughs> and I, I mean, I don't know if I would use the word regret, mm-hmm. but I definitely, it was on my mind a lot. I could just, you know, especially after my daughters were with their father, it was I kind of didn't care if I lived or died for a long time. So in that time period, it was, it would just be easier to go back. I'd have a roof over my head. Yeah, a lot of horrible fucked up shit would happen, but at least I wouldn't be scared to get struck by lightning while I was sleeping. Mm-hmm. It's so, really weird saying that out loud. <laughs> no, no, I mean, <laughs> so what was going through your mind? What what were you thinking that helped you get through through this dark period? Because I can imagine uh, it, it's a place where people, you know, really have a strong depression. And sadly, uh, you know, with depression, things can get darker and darker. Uh, what helped you to hold on? Like, what thoughts did you have to keep you strong? Well, after a while, um, while I was... Still in Florida, I got certified to be um, an an advocate. So I did do some volunteer work, which kind of gave me purpose. Um, In the midst of all of that, I got kidnapped and trafficked by someone different. And then that's a whole other story. Um, So escaping that situation just kind of added to the you know, feeling that I had inside that I just, I was nothing without them. And it was, it just, it felt like they were being proven right. The whole time they would say, no one would love you. No one would take you in. No one would care about you. You're nothing without us. So it was a struggle to try to keep it in my head that, okay, they're not right. Just because my circumstances are terrible right now doesn't make them any more right about what they're saying. But I just, I kept pushing through. I had some really great friends that helped out along the way. And I couch surfed for a little bit, did a whole bunch of other stuff. But it was, I just, I had to keep reminding myself that as, much as it feels like it would be easier to go back, it wasn't normal and it wasn't okay behavior. And I would not survive if I did. Uh, you mentioned that 
you started doing um you know volunteer work and you were mm -hmm. short you said something like you were sort of finding purpose yeah um <clears throat> what was it that uh that helped you find purpose outside of of just that project were there other things that you needed to do activities or maybe something else to find purpose in life because it's really you know from your background that's really that's really a dark place mm -hmm. i actually <clears throat> and i don't want to trigger any of your listeners um i somehow made my way to connecticut and i found an AA meeting that meant met every day at noon and they were great people. Um, I got my 90 day chip there, which happened to be a year or an entire year after I got my white chip, which is my, the surrender chip where you're basically starting the AA process. Um, so it took an entire year to stay sober and clean for 90 days in a row, but they were great old people <laughs> a lot of old vets and they just um they were so welcoming and they didn't care like you could sit there and be like you know what I just want to leave this meeting and use right now and you were accept like it was accepted to say that like they almost wanted you to say that so they could help to talk you through that and I also started going to church every day at the 7 a.m. Um, mass. And it's where I found God again. And I think that was really like my turning point in everything. Um, when I really started to realize that I was on a path, I wasn't sure at that time exactly what the path was, but I knew I was heading somewhere. I just had to let go and let God and get there. Uh, before you started going to 7 a.m. mass, did you have a relationship with your faith or was God just yeah. something uh, that you didn't connect with? No, I always did, even throughout the trafficking. I mean, I went to Catholic school, so I got to learn about the Catholic faith on a more personal level than a lot of people do because we learned about it in school. Um I had some pretty awesome nuns for teachers, which like amazes my husband that I've seen a real live nun. I'm like, as opposed to a fictional one. <laughs> he saw one at the store once and went crazy. I'm like, I'm sorry, sister. But I did. And um, I did. I always was a faithful person. I mean, I don't think there was a time that I didn't believe that he existed, but there was a time where I I had turned away and was shutting him out. And that was during the trafficking and after I had left. But when I made it to Connecticut, it was uh, probably about a year and a half after I had escaped. And that's when I finally found my way back. And I wouldn't say like I'm like a crazy religious person. I don't go to church every week now, but I do have a very good relationship at least i think i don't know i probably piss him off a lot <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was it was amazing there were two masses that really hit me i had a good friend of mine that had liver cancer and i you know prayed in the, before the mass started and was like 
you know, he's getting this procedure, please. He's in so much pain, free him of his pain and everything. And then the priest did his little thing and was like, you know, we can't just pray for someone's physical well-being, but we have to pray for their spiritual well-being. I'm like, I get it. Okay, my bad. Because <laughs> yeah. it was like right after. And then the following mass was about the prodigal son. And as soon as the priest started reading it, I'm like, no, mm -mm, no, <laughs> like not doing that. <laughs> but I don't think that's the message that he was sending. But um, it, it, it was just it was something constant to grab onto. There was so much chaos in every aspect of my life. So having that constant thing to always have there really helped. Well, thank you. Um, I, I didn't know that about you, that you would go to 7 a.m. AM mass. And he said you would do this every day. I don't anymore, but for a <laughs> long time I did, yeah. Um, uh, I was up until they closed the churches for COVID and then you know, once you get into the habit of being lazy, you kind of continue it. No, that's uh, that's actually kind of hard to go to mass every day. Some people, you know, um, I, I still am Catholic. I don't really practice as much. I don't mm -hmm. I don't go to mass all the time, uh, but it's it's hard to get up and to attend. And, you know, you did that for a while. So uh, how did you feel entering the church and you know, getting, having a stronger prayer life and let's say a relationship with, with God, did that help you in your, not only your spiritual journey, but did that also help you like maybe in your mental health journey, in your life journey? Uh, yeah. And I think honestly, I think it helped with my sobriety. Um, when I left Florida was the last time I used and um, I was on a plane and I crushed some pills up on the little TV tray and snorted them and looked up and was like, it's in your hands now. I can't do it. I, I just, I'm not, I can't feel it. I'm not strong enough. Like you got to help me. You got to carry me through this. And I've never touched it since. So, um, yeah, it's, oh, sorry. My dog's a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, baby. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's I, I like I said, it was just that constant uh, thing to grab onto. Okay, so you've walked us through that period of uh, getting through addiction, then you're you're finding now a relationship with your faith. Uh, what what are other some what are some other difficulties that you had to face? after leaving this world of trafficking that maybe the audience isn't aware of? Uh, well, you know, the one thing is like, hold on. Um, one of the hardest things I think was learning how to be a human, like a person again. It wasn't like I was ever taught how to function in society. So when I left and when I first escaped, it, the concept of, hey, go get a job and get an apartment just seemed so far away for me. And I didn't have my, I didn't have an ID. I didn't have a social security card. I didn't have um, a birth certificate. I still can't find, locate a birth certificate. I don't even know what state I was born in at this point, it feels like. And um 
it, so getting a job was kind of difficult, especially getting an apartment. I had no renter history. My credit was destroyed from identity theft. So it was just, I left one world and went into a completely different world. And that was very difficult. There's a misconception that when people escape sex trafficking, domestic violence, cults, and things like that, that they always have a family waiting for them with open arms to take them in and love them and so excited to see them again. But it's not always true. And if you look at statistics, it's more likely not true. So when I had escaped, I had nowhere to go. I had just friends. I couldn't trust anyone in my family, no job history, no rental history. So I was 26 years old and it's like I went from one really fucked up world to the real world, which was equally as fucked up in many ways. But I didn't know like the concept of getting a job, getting an apartment, getting a car was it was so foreign to me. Because I was raised on being dependent on someone. And like even opening a bank account, did you have difficulty doing that? I actually like um the the first bank account that I had was a joint bank account with a friend. I wasn't even able to open my own bank account. So I I had one with a friend, but um God, I remember the guy that I um dated uh towards the end before I escaped and afterwards I saw him using a debit card and I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world mm -hmm. I was like like wow you have a debit card <laughs> like it was it was just such a foreign thing to me even a credit card thinking about having like I have credit cards now and they're just so weird like I don't like to use them but it's like I still feel fancy when I use it when I'm like oh do you want my credit card number? Like, what can I pay with a credit card? Like, I feel like I'm fancy, like some rich person, mm -hmm. even though I'm really not. Like, I have like a very low limit. <laughs> but it was so many things that I think people take for granted every single day because it's just so common for them. But I mean, I didn't even have a cell phone. I didn't have a smartphone until... I think it was 2012 is when I finally got a smartphone, but um, I had to get a, a Metro PCS phone, which this was way back when, when, you know, it, it wasn't what it was now, but I didn't even always have money to put minutes on the phone. And it was, it was just bizarre to be like thrown into this world where I had to be self-sufficient, but I was never taught how. You really hit on uh, a lot of interesting points because for the rest of society, I mean, for like the regular norm, the norm is you, you go to school, get education, uh, you get a job when you're like 16, you get your first I, paycheck. I did all of that. I mean, I worked three jobs when I was 16. Um, okay. They for I think they forced me to work. So when I had lavish items it was a way to explain that away 
but my paychecks went directly into my parents' bank accounts and mm. they gave me the money when I needed it, even at 26. So for the longest time, even that was controlled, your own income. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, yeah. Not, that's not what, you know, people go through, you know, people my age now or are your, your age, my age, if you ask them, what was your life like? Oh, I went to school, you know, got a job at 16, went to college and things are normal. Oh, they, have their bank, was... they have their bank accounts, then they get their house and it's, it's easy. And then mm-hmm. many times, not always, but many times they have family support, friends yeah. and things are, it's smooth sailing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not trying to take anything away from them. You know, that's the life that they, they have. Good for them. Good I for mean, them. I got, ex- I got accepted into Juilliard for ballet and they, um, my father assaulted me and made sure that my knee got destroyed. So I could never dance again. Um, it, I mean, it was devastating. That was going to be my entire life. Then I wanted to join the army. Um, I had this amazing plan for my life. I was going to join the army, be an MP, be a cop, become a detective to take down the bad guys. And they did a lot of things to make sure that I got felonies. So that threw that out the window. It was it was just like they sabotaged any plan that I had to be anything other than their victim. But when I finally did leave, I had all of these plans and like dreams of what things were going to be like, but I really had no idea how the world worked. Like there were so many things that were just so weird to me, like the guy with the debit card. I never like, I just thought that was something fancy. I paid for everything with cash. You know, my parents, most of the money they spent was quote unquote dirty money. So they never used debit cards. They didn't use banks. Like a bank was, it was a rich person thing to me. And now I yell at my bank all the time, (laughs) but it's, and it's still something I struggle with. Um, I drive my husband crazy. Like the second we get paid, I pay all my bills, like every single bill, because that was another thing that they would control me with was if I needed money for something like for my daughter's field trip or something like that, they would hold it until the last minute to give me that panic. So I pay everything. I food shop on the day we get paid. Like I'm, I go from a big fat paycheck to like 20 bucks in about 20 minutes. I can't get out of it. I'm just too terrified not to pay everything right away. Mm -hmm. So I'm scared someone's going to take it. Uh, not my husband, but my parents. <laughs> but I'm still scared that they're going to do it. It's understandable, you know, your background. Uh, but when you, when you're in that process of leaving, and you know, I guess finding your finding your purpose, finding your life, uh, you started making friends, meeting people. Was mm-hmm. it hard for you to tell your story? Were you quiet about it? Were you ashamed? Were you like ashamed? Uh, how how was that communicating with strangers? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. 
Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Well, for the. I think it was the end of 2008. So for almost two years, I had been going to support groups before I escaped for domestic violence. So most of my friends were from there and it was easy to talk about it as domestic violence. The first person that I ever talked about the trafficking with was my husband. We, um, we met and um, he his best friend was my best friend's brother. So we started off as pen pals while he was deployed. And it was July 11th, 2010. Like, isn't it crazy that I remember that date? That's the yeah. first time I told him. And I said that um, I put it in a way that they would do things to me and allowed their friends to do stuff to me like that was at that point in time what I thought happened to me and it wasn't until many years later when I found out that it was sex trafficking um so it's kind of like me and my husband found out together at the same time like I was sitting in the recliner he was sitting on the couch and I'm like oh my god it was sex trafficking and he's like what 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 was and he like looks at the tv because i had the tv on and i was like do you remember what i told you um but um so that was like kind of how that started and it there's still a lot of things i'm i feel a lot of shame talking about um the things that they would force me to do um things clients would force me to do which i work on with my therapist, I work it out in my podcast. Um, when I was going live on TikTok, every once in a while, I would get into detail about things, but it's hard because I know that I know they're wrong, that no one will understand me, but they're right in a lot of ways because it's really hard to understand how much fear drives you to do things that you would never do and it makes you feel like you're a bad person and I know I'm not I know I'm not to blame for the things that they did I did what I had to do to survive even after my escape I did some fucked up shit that I regret doing but I had to I didn't have a choice I needed to survive somehow so I mean there is a lot of shame but I think a lot of that kind of goes with the stigma of what sex trafficking is and people they just don't realize the world of sex trafficking like it's just so complex there's so many moving parts and moving pieces um and as 
as long as they're looking at it as, well, a girl was taken from a Walmart and sent to an island in the Caribbean and then came back to her parents' house who loved her and missed her and think that's what trafficking is, it's going to be harder for not just me, but other survivors to talk about it. Because, I mean, they say they want to know, but mm -hmm. they really don't. Mm -hmm. As you started speaking up and sharing your story and, you know, sharing your own journey of healing on your own podcast and, you know, previously on TikTok, um, did you have a lot of people reaching out to you and mm -hmm. asking maybe for guidance? Yeah. And there was um, a lot of things that I thought was just specific to my situation and I got tons of survivors that were teaching me new terms. Um, like the children that I had stolen right from birth is a very common thing in trafficking rings and is called breeding. I didn't know that until I talked about it one time and on in a TikTok video. And I had message after message from survivors like that happened to me. That happened to me. I also had it from the flip side, too, where it was older women that, I mean, I'm 40 now, they were my age that had no idea who their parents were. And they were, while they were going on their path to figure out who they were, found out that they were the product of sex trafficking and an illegal adoption. So it's so common. And, and I learned that from people reaching out to me. And I still have people to this day reach out that I talk with. I just had a woman message me on Instagram that was a makeup artist in LA. And I mean, I looked at her following, it was huge. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> like, I can't believe someone this huge is coming to me. Um, but, and they asked, they were like, is, the, is what I experienced trafficking? Like, they just don't know. Yeah. And in our last episode, you really broke down uh, like some of the signs of trafficking, like you were talking about, you know, like at uh, it can be like at a, at a gas station and you, mm -hmm. know, you, you really broke it down. Um, do you think that you can break down what the healing journey looks like? Because there might be someone in the audience who is leaving a an environment like that and they have mm -hmm. no idea what are the first steps where to go for help and maybe like you they also don't have a family and just feel so lost and in despair so can you maybe give some advice of what steps uh can be or should be taken uh to to reach a a better environment and have again purpose in life number one the hardest thing that I didn't even know I was looking for was my own validation that it wasn't my fault. Um, there were things that happened where I was like, okay, it's not my fault. They did what they did, but I should hold some responsibility because I knew who they were. I knew what they were doing. I put myself in that place and I had to let that go. And I had to find that validation for myself that none of it was my fault. It didn't matter if I knew who they were. I could not control them. And 
Um, I think AA helped with that a lot, especially with the serenity prayer being one of the hugest things and, you know, realizing they're going to do what they're going to do and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Um, one of my favorite quotes that I learned through the recovery process was if you're playing a game of ball, a game of catch and you don't throw the ball back, what happens? Game over. So I just kind of lived my life around that concept of not throwing the ball back. Like they try so many ways to get, come after me. Um, they've tried to kidnap my son twice. They've tried to kidnap me. And I just, I can't put too much energy into it. I have to just ignore them. Um, which is hard. <laughs> it's not yeah. easy, but I, I try to, like I said, to live my life around not throwing the ball back and realizing even giving, even getting upset and giving them any kind of energy is giving them something and it's giving them that ball. So it's hard to get to that place. And I think it took at least 10 years for me to get there, but um, I don't know. It's, it's just so much of like your mindset, like me 10 years ago thought every time they made a lie about me that I had to prove that it wasn't true. And I had to do this, this, and this. And now I'm at the point where, okay, whatever, I don't care. They leave shitty comments on my, in the review section on my podcast saying I'm a liar and all this stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> but, but they're not like, as they're not as discreet as they think they are. <laughs> it, it's it's taken you ten years, right? You said since you yeah to up. get to the point where I'm just like I don't care. Like so many of my friends are just like, are you scared of your parents? And I, I'm not anymore. I mean, I've already survived the worst thing that could ever happen to me. I've survived things that were worse than death. And I think my journey of healing was realizing that it can't get any worse than it was. So I only had one place to go. So as long as I kept on climbing. Yes. And it's just so amazing to hear your story. Um, you're doing the podcast. You're you know putting yourself out there. Um, other other projects that you're looking to dive into as you're, you know, not only, you know, healing for yourself, but, you know, also growing uh, in the social media. Uh, what can we see from you in the future? Well, I actually just opened a nonprofit called the After the Last Sale Foundation. And we it's me and um, two other survivors of trauma one is a trafficking survivor and the other more domestic violence though trafficking was kind of messed in in a way but um amazing women and we are basically focusing on the after and i've got i've listened to my podcast i listened to the first episode the other night and i said it in that episode that saving a victim doesn't end after the last sale. And that's basically what my foundation is all about is supporting survivors like me um, that are getting an apartment for the first time that, 
you know, I just had a lot of dental work done and um, really could not afford it. Um, and maxing out credit cards. It was Ooh. ridiculous what I had to do to get it out or my teeth out. And I still can't even wear my dentures because they trigger me. Um, but you know, paying for legal fees, um, fees for school, school supplies, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Right now, all, all the organizations that are out there are amazing resources, but they focus so much on like the emergency crisis side of surviving, and they don't have the funding to be able to continue to help people that have been gone for 13 years. And like me being gone 13 years, I still need help every once in a while. Like when I had the dental, like I said, when I had the dental work done, it would have been great to have someone help pay for that because it was directly a result, like all the teeth rot from the trafficking. I mean, I can, I could tell you exactly what happened that led down the huge path of what happened to my teeth. So that's kind of my project now. I mean, I hate to call it a project. My passion, I think is a better word, but I've been wanting to open a nonprofit forever and it just happened out of nowhere. Um, a good friend that owns an organization donated to get me the money to pay all the fees and go through everything. And now I get to answer that awesome question of, do you have a job and say, yes, I'm CEO of a company. And they say, what is your income? Negative 5,000. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's a nonprofit. I don't make any money off of it. I don't take a salary. None of us are taking salaries. Everything is going right back to survivors. But that's, that's an important step for mm -hmm. not only maybe your healing, but, you know, also for these these young people most of the time i'm assuming they're young they could be older too but you know coming yeah. back to the world is just where do you go where do you start mm -hmm. and here you're offering a bit of well i actually it's like i it was maybe two and a half three years ago i finally got a new hair dryer and flat iron the thing that makes your hair flat for all the men, um, like straight, <laughs> yeah. I finally got new ones. They were bought by the man that kidnapped and trafficked me. And it was like, I, I couldn't afford to get anything new. So every time I did my hair, I was constantly reminded, but we have to leave everything behind everything. And one of the parts of the grooming process is giving lavish items. Like like those shoes, they they were maybe 30 bucks, if that, probably even cheaper, but I loved them. I had a pair of red heels that I loved. I had a car that was in my father's name that I had to give up. I mean, we leave everything behind. And in some extreme cases, um, I know one survivor when... Um, she reached out to me. I got the police to her. She didn't even have a pair of pants on. She just had an oversized t-shirt, nothing under it, and then was thrown into a shelter. Um, so she had nothing except a t-shirt. So they, there needs to be support because we struggle for the rest of our lives. I mean, like I said, I still have to pay all my bills because 
I keep I can't get that thing out of my head that someone's going to take the money and use it against me. Mm-hmm. So the services shouldn't stop. So that's what my foundation is going to do is support people that have been gone for a while past the two. I mean, I think it's like two years after you escape, that's considered like the emergency crisis. So we're going to pick up where everyone else leaves off. So, and it's more, it's not just because they can't, it's so they don't have to, you know, because they've got so like all the other organizations have so much stuff to focus on. And there's a lot out there that focus on different things, but that's just where we're going to focus on. So I went to my local anti-trafficking organization to ask for help with the teeth and I could see the look in the director's face. They just didn't have the money. And I understood it was kind of a, what's the worst that can happen. They say no kind of thing. So my, that's what inspired me to open after the last sale. So now if someone comes up to him and says, Hey, I really need to get dental work, then he can refer them over to my foundation and we'll pay for it or part of it, do what we can. So it's, um, I'll be leaving that information in the show notes. So I think it's very, it's very helpful for our society and for, you know, those who have been forgotten because sadly Mm -hmm. survivors, they, they get looked over, they get, you know, uh, many times ignored and even by family. And there's something that I wanted to bring up to kind of, you know, conclude because we're talking about survivors and the importance of really, you know, lifting them up and supporting them. Uh, maybe like a few months ago or several months ago, uh, you were bringing to my attention in our, you know, personal uh, conversations about like, especially on TikTok, how there are reports of, uh, false trafficking where there's like an influencer mm-hmm. and they'll be like, Oh, I almost got trafficked. And just, just, I think it was last week or less than a week ago, I was seeing that this girl, this, this woman has been arrested because she was uh, on her TikTok, I believe it was on either TikTok or Instagram live, whichever, whatever. And she was saying how there was these two people and they were, you know, trying to, to nab my son and then these two people, you know, came forward and were just like, hey, we're just people shopping. Yeah. And, uh, well, uh, what I what I want to ask is how damaging is that, in your opinion, to to the movement, like especially the movement that you're trying to do? How, how damaging is it to the cause? It's uh, devastating. I mean, category five EF or hurricane efi tornado devastating um and there it's it's really complex to get into it but um i don't know what video you're talking about i've seen some similar to that where women are just screaming at random men that are just walking in their direction um and it's the stranger danger it was taught to us when we're young it's carried on where we're teaching it to our kids but the danger is within the family more often than not um i think it's close to 90 percent of victims of child um child pornography sex trafficking and all of that know the people that are doing it to them 
But the other way, um, one thing that I've been starting to talk about is, I mean, when you talk to a child, what exactly is a stranger to them? Because they don't know who their teacher is when they meet their teacher at school, but they trust them because so it's like if someone walks up and is nice to mommy, are they a stranger? So I'm trying to break that stigma of stranger danger for kids, but also for adults too. Um, traffickers, they're very methodical in the way that they take people. They work and groom people for months. It's not something that happens overnight. You're not snatched and grabbed. Though Those things do happen, but it makes it, number one, hard to believe survivors. I got, and I, I still to this day, people don't understand how I don't remember everything. And even still today with my story, when I share, I'm, I'm not believed. And I don't know if it's that people are just like, ah, she's a flat out liar, or they just don't want to believe that trafficking can be that close to them. It's easier if it happened on an island in the Caribbean, or if it's the creepy guy at Walmart, because you just avoid that. But it's making it dangerous because, I mean, men are getting hurt, women are getting hurt, because people are just so hyper vigilant, And that's amazing that people are more aware, but they're not aware of where the true danger is. So like my aunts, for example, none of them did anything to help me. And even today, if I called one of my aunts, I mean, I've been completely disowned. Um, any questions I asked is, oh, well, I don't think I could be able to answer them for you and yada, yada, this, that, and the next. So it's like, it does, it makes it hard because it's the parents, it's the aunts, the husbands, the boyfriends, girlfriends, wives. I mean, I get, it's still so bizarre to me where people are like, I can't believe your mother would do that to you. And I'm like, but my father that's totally believable, <laughs> you know? So, but the fake stories, like I was, oh my God, I was almost trafficked. This creepy guy followed me. Okay. You're in a Walmart that has cans of soup and so many things make a damn scene, scream, do something to keep a attention to yourself. And people just aren't doing that. But as long as they're, have that false sense of security that okay well i this guy followed me and i called my boyfriend and i got out of there i was fine well are you paying attention to what your boyfriend is doing is he grooming you is he getting you to do things that you don't want to do that you don't think about that you don't want to do because when i was kidnapped i went willingly and i didn't even realize that i didn't actually go willingly until weeks after I was taken. But how is anyone going to understand how someone goes willingly to their own kidnapping and then realizes two weeks in, wait a minute, I've been kidnapped. Like it's, it is harmful. And I wish people would stop talking about it, but it's just, it's such a trendy topic right now, as sick as it is to say that. And I'm telling you, if I open my Twitter and see Jeffrey Epstein's name, I'm just going to lose my mind. Like, I'm tired of hearing about it. It's like everyone's focused on Epstein, where trafficking is no longer happening. 
but they're ignoring the rest of the world where it is happening. So it's hard to break that stigma and get through to people like, listen, who cares about a stupid list? It doesn't exist in the way that you think it does. And even if it got revealed, you can't do a damn thing about it. The victims need to come forward. And why would they? Look at Amber Heard. She got sued for $50 million. Mm -hmm. She was just as much a victim as he was, if not more. That's an unpopular opinion, I'm sure. But it's the climate and the way that people are talking about things. The survivor world is so toxic. I mean, I'm sure you see it, too. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that there are people who do this like uh, false, you know, claims of I was almost trafficked? Because, you know, with, with this the example that I'm using, you know, like I said, the, the people whom she was calling out actually came forward and, you know, they they came out to be totally clean. And this yeah. this person, the influencer, I guess. Do you think that they're doing it for popularity, that they want oh, maybe sympathy? I hate saying it, but yeah, I think the majority of it is for clout. And, you know, they see, I mean, I have one video on my TikTok that went over 2 million views in just a couple of days. And um, social media is about that instant gratification, like posting a video, posting a post and watching the attention that comes to it, which is how social media was designed and what it was designed to do. Um, I remember back when Instagram first came out, um, it was only pictures. You couldn't really write anything. And there were psychologists and psychiatrists that came out worried that it was going to increase narcissism because people were going to constantly care about their looks and it's only gotten worse and it's going to continue to get worse. I mean, I, I hate the government, but I really wish they would ban social media. <laughs> I, I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> that, and there's, I mean, there's traffickers on there too. Um, I had, girls that reached out to me a couple years ago that were said that they were survivors and they were still in a trafficking ring, still being trafficked and attempting to recruit me and take me back into trafficking. I have a soft spot for survivors. I just want to hug them all and give them the world. So, you know, it's, it's a cesspool everywhere. And, you brought something up which I think um, people forget. You know, you brought up, you brought up actually two things. One about the Epstein uh, Island. Yeah. I mean, we we know about it, but currently, you know, nothing's happening there. No. While everyone's attention is looking that way, mm -hmm. there is so much uh, ignorance regarding the trafficking. The, trafficking that is still happening and we're not even talking about international we're talking about Just within here. within the united states within cities and towns that's uh, being forgotten that's not people aren't even even caring about it well it's like it's taken on a whole life of itself i actually a few months ago saw a woman make a video she's part of 
I believe she's part of an organization. I know she at least makes videos for them. And I'll, I won't say who she is or what the organization is for privacy reasons. She made a claim that the Biden administration was taking unaccompanied minors from the border and sending them to the Ukraine. And that's why Russia invaded the Ukraine to rescue these kids. I'm like, what? I'm like, like I, where are you getting this? It's so far from the truth. Number one, Russia is the number one human trafficking country in the world. Um, but it's just, it's like, it takes the focus off what's really happening at the border where kids are being sent over with their traffickers and people aren't, it, that's it thing is like it's controlling the conversation and controlling the narrative to steer away from where what's really happening and where it's really happening and how it is and then you got to sit down and think to yourself who are the people that benefit the most from these stories existing it's definitely not the survivors it's the traffickers so when people put out that kind of false information, all they're doing is distracting from the truth and it's keeping the traffickers from hiding in plain sight. There was um, a pedophile ring taken down in the late 90s called Club Orchid and Club Wonderland. Orchid was in the United States. Wonderland was international. The process to get into that club is identical to one that was just discovered by a hacker within the past year. It's been 25 years and they're still doing it the same exact way. So these kinds of stories, they're helping them to do it the same exact way. And when this hacker came out, it was actually on another podcast. I'm wearing his merch now. Um, and so many people watched that episode and thought, oh, the elite, oh, the politicians. And I'm like, oh. my mind goes, okay, they have to submit so many pictures and videos of them assaulting a child. What's the easiest person or who's the easiest person? Their own children. Mm -hmm. Everyone else's mind goes to, oh, well, the elite kidnapped some kid. I'm like, how, how does your mind go there? Like, I, I, I don't understand. And it's probably because I, I lived that life and other people don't. And I'm just like, I, I, I can't. It, it's like the zip tie thing. Every time it pops up, I, I share it to my friend. I'm like, oh God, it's back. <laughs> she's like you talk about it like it's a clown or something scary i'm like it's just it's obnoxious and us survivors are fighting really hard to end it but i think it, it was less than a month ago polaris project posted on their instagram that not a single trafficker or a trafficking survivor was um story started with a rose on their car like they're just not true and they've been proved to be false over and over again. But people, they can find a post on social media somewhere whose sisters, cousins, boyfriends, aunts, you know, whoever happened to, but they're not looking where they're going to find the truth. And that's at 
the anti-trafficking organizations like the Human Trafficking Hotline, Polaris Project, Shared Hope International. I mean, if these stories were true, you would be hearing it in the news every day, all day, every day, and you're not. You're hearing about a teacher that trafficked kids, a parent that trafficked kids, a foster parent. Like that's the stories that you're hearing in the news every day. Well, maybe people aren't, but if you look, you'll find it. I signed up for a sex trafficking news Google alert and I actually, I had it to come in as they came. I had to change the setting because like my email was going crazy. Like every five minutes, a new article was coming out. I'm like- it's happening. People are being arrested all over the place, but it's people that are close to your children and close to you. And as long as you're listening to all the strange stories that come out on uh, social media, you're looking away. And there's only one person that benefits from that. And that's the traffickers. It makes you an easier target. And you so, you, you made a, a huge point right now that you know, people want to hear the stories of, you know, the ones doing the trafficking are just the elite or politicians, but then they ignore, you know, the. and I'm not denying that it doesn't happen. It, most likely it does happen. Mm -hmm. However, like you were saying, who are the ones like in, in bulk, like in, in the masses who are doing it? It's, it's happening by people whom these children, these kids, young adults mm -hmm. whom they trust. Look at the Catholic church. Yeah. I mean, they all trusted these priests or nuns, whatever. And it happened for several years. But in the beginning, no one wanted to believe it. It was easier to believe that, oh, some random stranger mm -hmm. came and abducted them. But to and, hear that a priest did it, it's like, oh, and that's why and victims even were silent. Now it's, and even now that story gets twisted. People think that the Catholic Church makes priests pedophiles. It's not. It's the opposite. The pedophiles choose the jobs and the places where they're going to have easy access to children and where they're going to be trusted. So that's another hill to climb. But um, yeah, my grandfather actually was a reverend, I want to say in the Protestant church, even though I wasn't Protestant. Mm -hmm. And he started a coalition a long time ago, I read an article about it. I had no idea about it until recently that was to help priests that had not been accused and were not pedophiles that were dealing with a lot of things. And he was working on changing the handled within the church thing that they would do. But, you know, it is, and it's, the world is scary. And I don't think people really understand that it's it's like right outside your door right in front of your face and you can't protect yourself from a fantasy so everything that i've been doing since i started sharing was to break that fantasy and break that stigma and tell people like my story as crazy as it is is not unique it i hear from survivors on a semi-daily basis that went through the same thing and i mean i'm a survivor of the elite so to speak but they were like less than what five percent of the people that i was trafficked to it was just a very small portion mm -hmm. but 
if they only live in Hollywood and they only live in DC, you just don't go there and you're safe. But it's such a false sense of security and you're really keeping yourself safe from a fantasy. Thank you, Kelly, for really bringing awareness and also sharing the healing journey that takes place after leaving that dark, terrible world of sex trafficking. And I hope that when people will hear you and you know come across your nonprofit, that it'll help uh, several people and that many more will come to assist and help out with this organization. Yeah, I really hope so. I'm really excited about it. It's been a passion of mine for a long time, though. I realized how much I really hate running a business, um, but <laughs> in the long run, helping people is going to make it so much worth it. And we need we need more stuff like that. We need survivors to open up their own organizations and help. It's no one knows the sex trafficking world better than a survivor. And if we want to bring it down and bring an end to this, which there's never going to be a complete end to it. But if we want to make changes that matter, the stories of survivors, not just what they went through, but what, what they went through after they escaped is going to help. I mean, one of the main missions of the After the Last Sale Foundation is to provide things for survivors to keep them from going back. I was lucky that I, and I don't want to say was strong enough because I don't want to invalidate anyone, but I was lucky that I never did go back no matter how many times I thought about it, but that's not the case for a lot. I know one survivor who's in her victim, I should say, that's in her 60s and has no desire to leave because she's been being trafficked for over 40 years now. And it's like, what kind of life is she going to have being 60 years old, entering into this new crazy world? Yeah. I know I wouldn't want to at that age. So awareness is not just about the gory details or what Epstein did, or, or who Epstein was friends with, or who was in his black book. That's not awareness. Awareness is the teachers. I mean, they had a daycare. Um, I can't remember where it was at. Um, it was somewhere in the Midwest, and a person in Atlanta, Georgia, got arrested and found out this overnight daycare was trafficking kids. And if that person hadn't gotten arrested, they never would have found out. So here's a daycare where pe parents that work overnight were paying for this person to watch their kid just essentially sleep with trafficking kids. It's that close to home. So if you're not looking for the signs and you're not talking to your kids and getting your kids to talk to you, then you're you just have just as much a chance of getting caught up in it as anyone else does. And it's scary. And I hate get like spreading a message of fear, but education is, it comes a long way. And um, a lot of survivors started sharing around the same time I did. And that's what all of us want is to share experience. So no one has to go through it. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for sharing your experiences as well as your words of survival and hope. And I really hope that uh, the listeners may, you know, learn something from today's interview. Uh, would you like okay. to leave any final words for the audience? Um, 
be gentle, not with, not just with other people, but with yourselves. Um, like I said, it took a long time to validate my story to myself and be, be gentle with yourself. If you haven't yet, if you haven't forgiven yourself for allowing it to happen for, and gone through all of that, it doesn't matter. There's no time frame. You can do it today. You can do it in 20 years from now, but just don't be so hard on yourself. It took a lot of strength to survive the things that I went through and that so many other survivors went through of all kinds of trauma. The strength is there inside of you. You just have to find it. And it may be piled under 10 miles of crap, but it's there. You just got to keep getting to it and just hold on to it. And I mean, like I said, God was the constant I had in my life that kept me going. It doesn't have to be the answer for everyone, but they have something. Just grab on to that, whether it's hope or whatever it is, and just keep fighting the fight. There is life on the outside. I have such an amazing life now, and I work with survivors and I'm friends with survivors that have made it out like, you can do it. You just, you have to keep digging and you have to keep fighting. So thank you so much, Kelly, for just, you know, also educating us and helping us to be more aware of the reality of what is happening in the sex trafficking world and how it's, it's closer to home than what people, you know, imagine. So thank you for bringing that to, to this podcast and for those listening, thank you for for sticking it out with us on this episode. You have been listening to Kelly from the Unbroken Podcast. Go and check that out. Uh, subscribe, follow follow her her work. I'll be leaving her links in the show notes. And thank you also to everyone who has been listening to my podcast, The Truth That Heals. Uh, every listen is uh, it's. I'm very grateful for all of my listeners and I'm grateful for you, Kelly, <laughs> for being, for being a, a I know when I told my husband, I was going to be a guest on your podcast again. He's like, do I know this guy? And I explained it. I'm like the guy I stopped on Twitter to be on my podcast. And he's like, Oh, okay. I know who you're talking about. Now. <laughs> I don't know how you're, one of your tweets popped up on my feed but i'm like come on my podcast please come on my podcast (laughs) and now we're really good friends well that that's the life of you know podcasting you also got to market you also got to you know put yourself out there and at times it can be inconvenient like exactly exhausting but hey i've opened Mm -hmm. a lot of doors and we were able to meet through through twitter and here we are going on each other's shows doing podcasts And thank you to everyone who has been listening to the Truth That Heals podcast.